All right. So we are in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the fifth Sunday of Lent. How many Sundays of Lent are there, I ask? Six, right? So this is the penultimate Sunday of Lent. And uh, so next Sunday will be Palm Sunday, also the sixth Sunday of Lent. So we will be moving into Holy Week at that point. So we're going to take a break on the Sermon on the Mount for a couple of weeks as we move into Holy Week and, uh, and celebrate that. And if... I just want to reiterate what Marion was saying. I think Good Friday service is probably my favorite service of the year. It's where the lights come down and we get into this, you know, I'm kind of a dark person. So again, in this little bit darker mode, we cover the cross in purple the way liturgical churches do. And it's just got a vibe to it and, uh, and, a, and a different kind of theater of the mind immersion. And so uh, if you can be there with us at 7 o'clock, it would be terrific. Because it is a it is a great great time to prepare us for Easter. Easter is immersive too. We do the same thing. It's more role playing, and we're we're trying to get into what were those first followers experiencing? How are their minds being blown at that time? Right, and uh, takes us on a little journey. But today, back into the uh, Sermon on the Mount. We're we're just about getting done with it. We're halfway through the the final and the third chapter, chapter seven of Matthew. And I wanted to start by saying, when I was a kid, and I'm sure many of you did too, how many of you made those plastic models? Model cars, trucks, planes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, see? Even Nina. Yeah, that's great. Ah, Sharon, of course, the artist. So we had, you know, you have those box full of all these plastic parts, and you had to cut them off the tree, and, and then you find how they fit together. You're looking at the plans, and you paint them, and you do this and do that. And so I loved making model cars, and so that was my thing, making model cars. And my father would come by and kind of sniff, and then, you know, at one point he said, when I was a kid, <laughs> you know, we had to make our own plans. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, we had to walk to school both ways in the snow, uphill, right? And we had to make our own plans. When his mother died, he was, he was from Nebraska. He grew up in Lincoln. And when his mother died, a, a, a trunk was shipped out to us full of a lot of keepsakes and things that they cleared out so that my dad could have it. And I'm pouring through, you know, I'm probably, I don't know, I might be eight, something like that. And I'm pouring through all this stuff. You know, it's just like a treasure chest. And I find these newspaper clippings about my dad winning awards for model planes that he created from absolute scratch. Drew his own plans, cut all the wood himself, covered it with stretched fabric, right? It had leather upholstered seats and working lights inside the interior of the plane. It was insane. And so I got a little insight into what he was talking about. You know, the difference of the experience of starting with literally nothing but an idea in your head and creating this thing. I wish I had one of those planes, man. I just Is it in a museum somewhere in Lincoln? I don't know, but it, it's just amazing. And then I remember my sister, how many of you did paint by numbers? All right, paint by numbers. So my sister was doing paint by numbers, and she did a paint by number last supper, you know, Da Vinci's last supper. And you, you paint, you find all the numbers, and you paint and paint, paint. And she finally had this thing. And, you know, when you stood about a block away, it looked like <laughs> the actual last supper. Imagine the difference of experience of my sister painting by numbers and Da Vinci 
the artist's experience of what he had in his head, what was happening as he mixed his own paints, as he crushed the elements and mixed paints and, and did everything on that fresco. Imagine what that experience was like as opposed to paint by numbers. You see, Jesus is trying to take us from a paint by numbers experience in our spirituality to the actual artist's experience that starts from some place that we can't even describe, that we can't even put into words, and flows through us onto some sort of medium that others can appreciate and experience themselves as well. You can't even really talk about or express the creative experience. Those of you who are artists, those of you who have created anything, you know this, musicians, whatever, something happens and you end up standing back and wondering, where did that come from? Where did, where did that idea come from as a writer, as anything? It's almost as if it came from someplace else and flowed through you. And when you're in the flow of that creative experience, it's, it's almost out of body sometimes. How do we express that? See, Jesus is trying to get us there, get us away from the paint by numbers, the obedience of certain rules and codes, because the two are as different as the ends of the earth. He knows we need to get there. He knows we need to graduate from mere obedience, from mere conformance to a transformance that takes us into a new identity and a sense of meaning and purpose that really can't fully be expressed because it is so otherworldly. And by contrast, the Pharisees of his day had created a paint-by-numbers religion. They had created a paint-by-numbers righteousness. And that's what they were imposing on all the people, this paint-by-numbers spirituality. And Jesus was having none of it. <laughs> he was pushing against them at every possible place. And within the Sermon on the Mount, right in the first, in the 20th verse of, of chapter 5, he says, unless you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is what he's talking about. This paint-by-numbers religion, this paint-by-numbers spirituality, if we don't exceed that, we will never experience what the artist experiences. We'll never experience that creative flow what happens when we're really in this place? And the Pharisees had it wired. They had it down. They had, they had extracted 613 laws from the first five books, the Torah. And half of them were positive and half of them were negative. These are the things you do. These are the things that you don't do. And if you just put all this together and keep it just perfectly, then it's a mathematical equation, you know? A plus B equals C. And Jesus is breaking that all down. Remember in the first chapter, chapter 5, actually verse 21, the next verse, right after Jesus says, you've got to exceed this kind of righteousness, this mindset. And then he says, hey, you know, you think just because you didn't commit murder or adultery that you're okay, because the Pharisees would say you were. You painted within the numbers. You painted within the lines. You're okay. But what he's trying to get us to do instead of just stopping bad behavior, to realize that bad behavior is just a symptom, and to move beyond that and realize that the lack of connection that we have one with each other, the lack of relationship that we have one with each other, 
leads to the bad behavior. Go to the source. Find yourself way down deep inside. Why is it that you feel separated from one another? Why do you feel that someone is object enough, other enough, that you can kill, that you can cheat? How does that work? If we go back to the connection, find the connection, everything changes. And we're no longer obeying rules or laws. We're no longer worried or fearful of punishment if we don't. Like night follows day, this is who we are. Everything changes. In verse 44, he talks about loving the enemy. In that culture, it was kinship. It was like behavior that was the standard for acceptance. If someone was your kin, if they were of your tribe, of your nation, if they behaved the way you did, if they lived under the law the way you do, then they were acceptable. But if not, they were enemy, they were other. And you didn't have to respect them. You didn't have to treat them as equals, as human beings. And Jesus is saying, we need to move beyond that into an identification with everyone around us to see that we are all equally loved. We are all equally children of God. We are all equally human. And let our behavior flow from there. Let our sense of kinship flow from there. He's trying to get us to graduate from that paint by numbers. Chapter 6, verse 1, is all about starting with the righteousness code of the Pharisees, giving alms, prayer, and fasting. And they had worked it out to the numbers again. This is how much you give. This is when you fast. This is how you pray. And now instead of stopping bad behavior, this is about doing the good behavior that then proves your righteousness. And of course, make sure everybody knows about it too. That's the other thing, so that we can be recognized for the things that we're doing. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, retreat to a secret place. Move into solitude. Move into silence. Because it's there in that silence that the God who is also silent is connected with you. Why silence? Why solitude? What is that all about? Because in the silence and the solitude, there's no place to hide. We hide in the noise. We hide in our distractions. We hide in our illusions of identity and the projections and who we think we are egoically and who we project ourselves to be. In the silence with nobody watching, there's no place to hide. It changes everything. Our motives are exposed. Why do we do the things we do, even if they're good? Is it because we want to be noticed, or is it because it's just flowing through us, as spirit does? It's in the silence and the solitude that our true identity becomes revealed to us, not the one we imagine in our heads, but this deeper one that can't even be expressed. It can't be put to words, because as soon as you do, it becomes another egoic expression, and it's no longer the connection like that creative flow And all of our acts from that point on become pure. They become part of that integrity of who we are becoming. In chapter 7, he starts talking about judgment. You know, judgment and the codes that they lived by were the the litmus test of acceptability, right? It's kind of like, if you are as tall as the bottom of this sign, then you can ride my ride. If you follow these rules, if you do all this, if you're of this lineage, then you can ride my ride. But if you can't, then you're out, you're other, you're done. You know, That judgment was the test 
of acceptability. And what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is that, we, that judgment is the means of disconnection. It's how we separate one of ourselves to another. It's the lack of identity with each other that keeps us apart. We need to move beyond that as well. At verse 9 in chapter 7, he's talking about stones and snakes, remember? If you who are evil, bisha, right, unripe, still informed, not yet ready for prime time, Know how to give good things to your children. When they ask for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give them a stone. When they ask for a fish, you're not going to give them a snake. How much more will your Father in heaven? Give good things to his children who ask. And this is all about the focus on the outward ritual, the focus on just the mechanics of religion, and moving beyond that to actually discern what brings life to us, what preserves life to us to move into that place that we can tell certain things look good on the outside, but they're not really nourishing the spirit on the inside. They're not preserving relationships or life. To move again beyond the numbers. And then last week, chapter 7, verse 12, that golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And we said, as soon as you understand it as a rule, you're cooked. Because once it's a rule, it's an obligation. Once it's a rule, it's either a tax, you know, or it's avoiding punishment, whatever. But it has nothing to do with that experience anymore, that creative experience. The Jews understood whether it was formulated in the, ne- in the negative, and it predates Jesus by at least 100 years, or in the positive, as Jesus does, as a summary of all the law. Someone asked Rabbi Hillel, generation before Jesus to, could he recite the whole law standing on one leg? (laughs) And he says, sure. What is hateful to you, don't do to others. You know, this is a summary of the law and the prophets. Now go and study. You know, that was it. But beyond just being a summary of the law, it really is a deep statement of identity. Who we are, from which flows this kind of other-centered connection is really what this is all about. A statement of identity, a statement of oneness and connection. You know, we really, if I asked you to define love, I'd get all sorts of answers. You might talk about it as a feeling, you might talk about it as behavior, loving behavior. But Merton said that what love really is, Thomas Merton, love really is, is identity with the other that when we are so one with the other, that what we do to them is as if we did it to ourselves. Everything changes. We are no longer painting by numbers. We're no longer following rules or obeying anything. If the other is as if ourselves, that line is so blurred, then the behavior just follows like night follows day. This is where Jesus is trying to get us. And then we move to verse 13. Let's take a look. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. He has just finished giving us the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And then he says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now this verse has created no end to problems 
because of the context in which we put it. So we've got a small gate. He calls it narrow at first. He calls it small later. And a narrow way. What is he talking about? What's the meaning? What he is talking about here is he's making a comment. Remember we said everything in verse 7 is all of a piece. It's all driving toward this summary that we call the golden rule. Now he's making a comment about this whole process, this whole way, this whole graduation from paint by numbers to a creative artistic experience. And then he's telling us that few find it, right? He's commenting on, he's warning about the reality, the difficulty of what is actually required to do what he's talking about doing. To make this switch, to graduate past obedience, to be able to actually transform, understand ourselves from the inside out different, so differently that our identity is actually changed, that we see life in a completely different way, that our very worldview changes, the ground on which we walk changes. He's saying this is really difficult. And few are actually going to find it. What is actually required to do this? Jesus is throughout his ministry, brutally clear, brutally clear that following his way is hard. Take a look at Luke 14, starting at verse 26. Just listen to this whole passage and see if you can get what he's talking about. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, hate his own father and mother. And even though sena in Aramaic means to prefer less, it doesn't mean a malicious hate. Still, Anyone who comes to me and does not prefer less his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then... None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Okay, so you're standing in the Judean countryside or the Galilean hillside, and Jesus downloads this thing, lays all this stuff on you. How enthusiastic do you think you're going to be to want to follow what he's selling here? And remember, this hits us not in the way that it would hit them right in the face culturally because of, he's talking, the imagery is coming out of their culture. Family was everything. How in the world can this be true? Is there any wonder why those who did follow Jesus were the ones who are already stripped down by life? those who were already disenfranchised, those who were poor, those who were sick, injured, the outcasts of their society and culture, grief-stricken, guilt-ridden, heart-sick, depressed, stressed, 
all of those things. Is it any wonder that those are the people who respond to a message like this? Now, I know many of your stories because you've told them to me. Where you came from, how you came to be sitting in these seats right here. And many of you know my story. Isn't it the same with all of us? Wasn't there something that broke us, tore us down enough that something that what Je- like Jesus is talking about sounded like a good idea? <laughs> because those of us who are invested, those of us who have our own means and are still living by the illusion of our own self-sufficiency, how many of us are going to give that up willingly to do what Jesus is talking about? Brutally, again, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be able to enter the kingdom. Not riches just in wealth, but riches in the egoic illusions that they hold about themselves and how they see going forward makes sense, what they rely on. Because to willingly give up your source of power is just about impossible for a human being to do. When the illusions are broken down, that we can begin to walk past. But for almost every one of us, something needs to happen. And even the rich who come to Jesus, there is a longing in their soul, there is a heart sickness that is still driving them past their riches materially to look at what Jesus has to offer. So here in Matthew 7, verse 14, Jesus is just flat out saying, very few of you are actually going to do this. You're actually going to do what is required. But see, now we misunderstand his saying here. Because for us, the context here as Western Christians is always about the afterlife. We're always about heaven. We're always about avoiding hell and obtaining heaven. And that's the context that we put all of Jesus' teaching into. But as soon as we do that, we're misinterpreting what he's saying. We think the broad way is leading to hell. We think that the narrow way is leading to heaven. And very few people are going to go there. And that changes everything about our view of God. It changes all the calculus about the way that we look at life. Really? Are most people going to hell? As you're sitting right there, take a look at the person to your left and the person to your right. At least one of you is not going where you want to go. Maybe both of you. Is that really what this is all about? Is this the God that we have that creates billions of people mostly as fodder for hell? And I know we say something like, you know, well, God's ways are not our ways, you know, and, and we can't think the way God thinks. We can't reason and logic and question God. But Jesus shows us how to do that. He just did. He said, hey, those of you who are still imperfect know how to give good things to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those of you who ask? He's using that kind of logic. He's using that kind of common sense. He's showing us a God that doesn't act this way. He doesn't act this way. And he said, I and the Father are one. We're missing the boat here. When we put the context in the afterlife, we're going to miss everything that Jesus is trying to tell us. That's not good news. And even if you say, well, the good news is that I can be saved. Well, how sweet is that salvation? If you know that most of the people that you know and love and care about are not going to have the same opportunity that you do. Well, it's their own choice. Oh, 
There's a rub there that I can't get beyond. It's up to you to figure out how you get beyond it. And I can't tell you how heaven and hell work. I have no idea. I can't even tell you if heaven and hell exist in the way that we understand those terms. And nobody else can either. It's just something that we can't know. It's impossible to know. Fortunately, we don't have to have all that figured out in order to just follow Jesus at his word. Because this is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus' context is not about the afterlife. Jewish context is not about the afterlife. There is no theology. There is no doctrine in Judaism about the afterlife. You can basically believe whatever you want to believe. And when Jews talk about salvation, they're talking about spiritual liberation right here and right now. Jesus' context is kingdom, and we think kingdom is heaven. Kingdom is the quality of life that we can have right here and right now, when we are one with, when we are identified with, when all these things we're talking about start to take place in us from the inside out, and we graduate from painting by numbers into a creative experience that locks us in with each other and everything around us, that's kingdom, but it's here and it's now. The narrow gate that he's talking about is the portal to a way of transformed life that is characterized by unity, by connection, and every bit of it right here and right now. Yes, it continues on into the afterlife, but it doesn't start there. It starts here. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Most people are not going to hell. I don't believe. But most people never break through their own barriers, their own brokenness, their own hurts and traumas and ways of dealing with those to find the abundant life that Jesus is talking about. Because it's hard work. Those of you who have been through therapy... Those of you who have been through recovery, right? Those of you who have been through serious and true spiritual formation of one type or another, or those of you who have just been through some really deep loss that just took the joy out of life. If you're here and you're still breathing and you're finding new life again, how hard was that to go through? How deep did you have to dig? How much stuff did you have to uncover that you wish had just stayed under the rock? This is what Jesus is talking about. He was driven to exhaustion and starvation by his time in the wilderness because that was his time of moving past those three energy centers that we've talked about, those three needs, relevance, power, attention, that come up in all of us. But... Having said that, our behavior has nothing to do with God's love, God's acceptance. And I know that sounds maybe heretical to you, that our behavior has nothing to do with God's acceptance of us. But Jesus says his love is absolute. On the other hand, our behavior has everything to do with our experience of God's love, life, relationship, right here and right now. We can't change the nature of God's love no matter what we do. But what we do changes our ability to receive it, to be aware of it, to make it actually operational in our lives, to change something so that we can be saved, quote-unquote, the way the Jews understood salvation, to be liberated here and now, to become free from all the 
obsessive compulsive thought and behavior patterns that arise out of our unconscious emotional programs for happiness that are answers to being deprived of those three energy centers survival and security esteem and affection power and control we all want those things and if we don't get them this is what happens how do we work through them how do we know if we're actually moving through the narrow gate that we've moved through the narrow gate the small gate that we're on the narrow way how do we even know if we're anywhere in the vicinity the ballpark let's ask ourselves five questions the first one is what is this gate <laughs> what is this gate all about that he's talking about does it have anything to do with anything more than just a simple gate on a hinge let's take a look at john 10 one to nine he says truly truly i say to you he who does not enter by the door or by the gate into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way he's a thief and a robber but he who enters by the door or the gate is a shepherd of the sheep truly truly i say to you i am the door i am the gate of the sheep all who came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not hear them i am the door i am the gate if anyone enters through me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture jesus is the gate the gate is a person not a thing and we've talked about this before but ancient sheepfolds were just rude structures that were just piled up with anything that was around usually built into the side of a uh, of a hill so that you only had to build three other sides and they didn't have to be very tall because sheep are not the brightest bulbs on the tree you know they, they they'll respect whatever lines that that you set for them and then a space was just left open and the shepherd would literally sleep in that space and the sheep wouldn't jump over him because he was the door he was the gate this is the imagery that jesus is bringing up for them and they all understood this he is the door he is the gate there is only one door there's only one gate if you go by any other way you're not going in and out legitimately you haven't gone through this grind that we're talking about here the difficulty of the way that strips everything out and allows us to be able to just be so there's no shortcuts take a look at matthew 7 13 and 14 again but this time in the message paraphrase you have to look at your insight i don't think he's got, you have the message back there you can put it up then matthew 7 13 in the message he says don't look for shortcuts to god the market is flooded with surefire easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time don't you love that don't fall for that stuff even though crowds of people do the way to life to god is vigorous and requires total attention bravo eugene peterson he just nailed it there the gate is a person it's a relationship to a person that changes things for us but then we got to be careful here too because we're also going to misunderstand as modern western christians and we're going to say well jesus is a theological understanding i have to understand him theologically just this way I remember early on when I first came to an evangelical church and people were railing against Mormons, against LDS, and I said, I had experience with LDS for a year in the church before that. 
And I said, well, they're Christians too. They're following Jesus. And they said, no, they're following the wrong Jesus. Okay, so because we don't understand or they don't understand Jesus in the same theological framework, he is the wrong Jesus, has no power to save. We're going to get all messed up here if we're thinking of Jesus just theologically or conceptually as just something that we hold in our minds. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not a relationship with a person. That's a relationship with an idea. And it's not about a relationship to a code of behavior or a set of rules to follow. This is about a person that we connect with, that we actually fall in love with, that we become one and the same with, that we begin to look like. We start to finish each other's sentences like old married couples do. This is what we're talking about here. But even then... Living as Jesus lived, loving as Jesus loved, is not the goal of his way. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you. It sounds kind of weird, huh? But think of it this way. Living as Jesus lived and loving as Jesus loved is the byproduct of having become one with the person of Jesus. See the difference? We're not painting by numbers here. We are becoming something new that acts in a wholly new way. Everything changes when we do that. Third question, well then, who is Jesus that we are supposed to be coming one with? And if you remember Philip, when Jesus says, hey, he he just answered Thomas, you know, I'm the way. I I skipped one, didn't I? No, I'm sorry. Okay, so the second question, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. So the first question is, what is the gate? The second question is, well, what is the way? All right, now we take a look at John 14, verse 3. I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the gate. It's a person again. And not just a path and not just a behavior here. We misunderstand again. And this is where I was supposed to have been when I said that, you know. That living as Jesus lived and loving as Jesus loved is the byproduct of having become one with him. Not just slavishly following another paint-by-numbers formula. So who is this Jesus that we're supposed to become one with? Right after he answers Thomas, Philip chirps up and says, hey, well then just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And you can just see Jesus smacking his head. How long have you been walking with me, Philip? How many years now and you still don't get it? You still don't know who I am? I and the Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Who is this Jesus that we're supposed to become one with? He's one with the Father, one and the same with the Father, identical with the Father. There is no space, no daylight between them. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's nothing else to see here. This is who Jesus is. To be one with Jesus is to be one with the Father. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? It's the same thing here. This way of Jesus is living in identity with the Father as Jesus did himself. 
And if that sounds heretical to you, remember right after this, Jesus says, those who believe on me will do the things that I do and greater things than these. This is not beyond us. In John 17, the whole prayer is about, Father, make them one as you and I are one. We're supposed to be one. And since we can see Jesus and we can see what he does, we become one with him. Not just slavishly following, but actually moving into what animates him. Just like we said at communion. To take into ourselves the essence of what animates us makes everything change. Why is this gate and why is this way narrow? It's because of our intolerance of uncertainty. Remember when we said all the emotional disturbances, all the emotional disorders result from an intolerance of uncertainty and everything that we have to do to try to create the illusion of some sort of certainty. It's the fear of the unknown. It's the unwillingness to leave the illusion of security that we have built up in the familiar, in the material. It's the unwillingness to do the hard work of drilling down into our unconscious, those source of all those programs, the compulsive thoughts and behavior patterns. Most people are just unwilling to take the risk. They remain defended. And as long as they're defended, they never find the freedom of fearless vulnerability. Can't do it. But in our fear, we keep that wall up. That's why the gate and the way are narrow. Last question. How do we begin to negotiate this gate and this way? I think it's important for us to understand what the words mean in Jesus' native language, to understand what his first hearers would have understood. The word narrow, first of all, as it's applied to the gate. Actually, there's two different words here. Jesus calls the gate narrow first, and then he calls the gate small. So when he says a small gate, the word there is katina. And it literally means thin or frail, subtle. That's a good one. Subtle, delicate, ethereal. All those things, which means that it's easy to miss, right? Something that's ethereal is, is just not, it's not solid. We can't really see it. It's subtle. It's thin. It's delicate. When he talks about the narrow way, the word that he wor- uses there is alitza. This means compelling or pressing, urgent. It also means constricted. Think of it in terms of when you constrict the flow of something, it shoots out faster, right? When you put the nozzle on your hose, it shoots out faster. When the river gets constricted, it's white water and you got the rapids. It's, it's that kind of idea that this way is constricted, but it's creating this compelling, pressing urgency at the same time. The gate itself, dara, flow, an opening between worlds, or an opening or a flow over boundaries, all right? And then the way, urha, is a path or a manner of living. Now let's take a look at the Aramaic paraphrase from Neil Douglas Klotz and see how he translates the same passage. Subtle and delicate is the gate that lets us flow over our boundaries. Compelling and urgent is the way that leads to the connectedness of all. It is not a way for the faint-hearted, for those unwilling to use their full inner fire and passionate desire to find it. Okay. Now it's starting to come clearer. Before we can walk the way of Jesus, we got to find the gate. It's like finding the trailhead to the path, right? 
And the gate is not what we expect it to be. It's easy to miss because Jesus himself is not what we expect him to be, and he is the gate. He's humble. He's unassuming. Isaiah tells us he's not attractive. We would have no love for him just based on his looks. He's not what we expect to see. He's not what we build up in our minds and in our culture. We would walk right past him and not give him a second glance. The gate, Jesus, easy to miss and easy to dismiss. And the way itself is pressing. It's tumultuous. It requires everything from us that we need to negotiate. Just think about whitewater rafting. What does it take to stay in that boat? What does it take to keep that boat upright? How do you navigate that? If we don't miss the gate, then we're in the way. But the way is going to be pressing. It's going to be urgent. It's going to be compelling. It's going to move us through. What Jesus is talking about here is building up our personal awareness to be able to see ourselves as we really are, vulnerable and dependent, the Anavim spirit, because that is what finding the gate is all about. It's like the first step of AA, to admit your powerlessness. Nothing happens after that until you can then get to the place where you realize you need help here, that you can't do this under your own steam. Then everything else becomes possible. It's the same thing here. We will miss the gate. We will miss the trailhead if we don't first build our awareness up to the point that we can see who we really are in relation to each other, in relation to God. Because without this awareness, without this insight, we will walk right past the gate and never know it. Learning to love what God loves, willingness to let go and embrace the unfamiliar, the unknown, this is walking the way. And it's not easy. And it requires everything from us. Last thing I wanted to do is just read a poem that you probably have heard before. But just like Nina, reading the entirety of the Serenity Prayer, to read the entirety of this poem and not just the one-liner, maybe it'll change a few things. This is The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I? I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Our ability to see the road less traveled as attractive, our willingness to risk pioneering this way, this is the key to negotiating first that thin and subtle gate. If we keep looking for and wanting what is familiar, what is expected, what is spectacular in our own judgment, 
we will miss the gate and the way completely because they are the gate and the way of a humble and unassuming God. And until we can accept that in our own spirits, we'll never accept the way. Let's pray. Again, Father, obviously you know how difficult this all is for us. Help us to be those who are willing to do what is required, to move beyond our fears, to move beyond the security of the things that are familiar for us that we built up in our lives so that we can move into this space that you have, this incredible freedom, this incredible experience of the flow of your love and your spirit. That's what we want, Lord. But we're afraid, and we hold back, and we stay defended. Help us to chip away at that little by little in whatever way we can, not all at once, but taking steps in that direction always so that we can meet you where you really live and experience everything that you have for us. And as we prepare for the new life of Easter, Lord, I pray that this would be more and more on our consciousness, in our intention to continue to do this. Thank you, Father, for everything that you do. Never let us forget we can only love because you've loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.